Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college and other important topics in mental health. In this episode of Psych Matters, Drs. Israel Berger, Vidya Narayan and Kiran Allen discuss their lived experience of mental illness and how mental illness affects doctors. They address the issues of suicidality amongst healthcare workers, particularly psychiatrists, trainees and specialist international medical graduates, how to seek help, regulatory concerns, managing confidentiality and inpatient admissions. They speak about their own experiences of mental illness and seeking support in addition to general issues. We acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as the First Nations and the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters known as Australia and Māori as Tangata Whenua in Aotearoa. We honour and respect the Elders past and present who weave their wisdom into all realms of life. I'm Israel. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatry trainee at Goulburn Valley Health and I've written a bit about lived experience of depression. Vidya? My name's Vidya. I'm a SIMG registrar, who is the equivalent of stage three local trainees. And uh, I've worked across three different services over the last seven years in Australia. Currently, I'm also a senior registrar at Goulburn Valley Health. My name's Kieran Allen. I'm a stage two trainee in Melbourne. I'm currently working at Monash Health in a consultation liaison role. I've written and presented about my own battles with mental ill health and the, the challenges I've had to face, including to our annual conference in 2021. And I also volunteer my time as one of the executives of Hand in Hand Peer Support, which is a preclinical support service for all health professionals. I thought we might start our discussion looking at some of the doctor suicide stats that have come up over the years with the most recent Australian study being um, on 2019 survey looking at depression and suicidal ideation. So about 25% of doctors have had suicidal ideation in the past 12 months of when the survey took place. And that's really astonishing, with about 20% being actually treated for depression. And that's not even counting other mental illnesses like bipolar or psychosis, PTSD, etc. So it's really common in medicine to experience mental ill health, but we often don't talk about it. I think, Israel, you've touched on something that has sort of emerged in the consciousness of medical practitioners over the last 10 or so years uh, that suicidality is a real risk for medical practitioners. And I think what I've noticed from my reading has been that the mechanism of suicide is is quite different amongst medical practitioners and, and quite high risk in some ways in the sense that most suicides of medical practitioners are actually self-poisonings and usually of prescription medications. You know, there's people have access to these medications and they know what they're doing when they're using them. So when they have a crisis that comes up in their lives, they have an easy way to reach for quite a, in in their mind at the time, an effective way of, of ending it all. 
And I think that goes to explain some of the reason why we see suicidal ideation that is dangerously high in medical practitioners. Yeah, and although we don't have Australian data about actual suicides amongst health professionals, data from the US for many years now has shown that the rates are very high um, compared to the general population. And uh, psychiatrists in particular have an astonishingly high suicide rate even compared to other medical practitioners. Other mental health practitioners as well, um, psychologists um, have been studied and it's quite distressing really. There was a recent suicide by a psychiatrist in England a few weeks ago from this recording because he was facing a complaint. And that's something that a lot of doctors have to deal with, that the general population don't necessarily have to deal with. Complaints often can be catastrophized into, I'm going to lose my career. And that may or may not actually be accurate for the people involved. It's a huge stressor for a lot of um, doctors, whether it's the fear of getting a complaint or actually having to go through the complaint process. And I think the complaint process is certainly not one that is seeking to support the person who the complaint is made against. And it certainly puts that person under a great deal of pressure. And Vidya, I wonder if you've had any experience coming from an overseas environment into into the Australian context with that extra stress around registration and the requirements of, of adhering to the college program and what sort of stress that's put under your fellow colleagues? So in general, I think we have uh, uh, very few options in terms of registrations and uh, we are often on a limited registration and that is something which is more unstable than, it's not like a general registration which you can practice with still even if you're on a break-in training or also the stress of migration, you're often here on your own and you don't have a support network around you unless you're familiar with the people at your service or you have peers who have come earlier than you or And also culturally speaking, I think I come from India and it's a bit more um, hush there. We don't uh, talk much sometimes about our own mental health. And uh, coming from that side, it's an additional barrier. You can say kind of self-imposed or a culturally imposed barrier to also talk about the difficulties that you're going through, be it anywhere ranging from stress to having a major mental illness. It can be quite difficult to talk about it. So there's a lot of stigma about talking about your mental health as well sometimes. If not real stigma, like at least you perceive a stigma around it. So so there's discomfort around talking about it as well. I know that over the past few years, there's been a lot more awareness of burnout amongst healthcare workers with COVID and staffing shortages as a result, as well as just the the general stress of having a new infectious disease around. I wonder, Kieran, could you tell us a bit about Hand in Hand and how it came about? So I think it came about with COVID, didn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So Hand in Hand came about uh, was essentially an idea on on the back of a piece of paper by our founder, Tani Britson, in its first instance. And Tani really was seeking to find a way to support our healthcare colleagues in what was a very difficult situation. And as you allude to, Israel, that's on the background of a very 
difficult working environment prior to the pandemic, which had just been exacerbated by this new insult that everyone was trying to grapple with. And so the idea behind Hand in Hand was to identify what was lacking uh, in the support structures that were available and see how we could make the most impact with the broadest approach uh, for all healthcare practitioners. And so we set up a preclinical service which uh, essentially pairs people who are seeking support either with a one-on-one or a group facilitator and those groups or the one-on-one sessions meet at a, at a regularity that's convenient to both people and essentially they meet as peers so they're on the same level the same usually a similar specialty or similar background and try to support one another through the experience of in our case being a, a doctor or a mental health practitioner but across the health professions as well and We've seen that we've had quite significant uptake over the last two and a half years and have really been able to make some great inroads. We've also been able to share our knowledge with uh, some of the other groups such as the Society of Anaesthetists and have expanded into offering services for some of the universities for the medical students uh, and continue to, to do that and still at the point where we're expanding now and we hope that the service can continue to be taken up. We, at the moment, really need facilitators to be able to continue offering the service to people. Facilitators are our backbone, essentially, and that is where our pinch point is at the moment. We really need more people to put their hand up to be trained as facilitators and to be willing to offer their time to facilitate the support groups. I think that services like Hand in Hand are really, really valuable because often there's not immediate access to to mental health support and you, know, you don't necessarily need to see a psychologist because you're experiencing some burnout or issues at work, but you, you do need people to talk to, and, and having a peer support option is really, really helpful and valuable. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's also something that can be put in place even before people get to the point of burnout as, as a bit of a preventative measure, as something that can yeah. be a bit of a defence for getting to the point of burnout instead. There's been a lot of talk in the media and in in healthcare forums about burnout. So I I don't want to dwell too much on um, burnout, but it is a big, big issue and and does affect a lot of people. And there's there's more awareness as well of the the effects and, and also developing things like depression and anxiety. And that's growing. We're nowhere near perfect there's a bit more awareness and willingness to to talk about these things. So I've I've written about my experience of a a major depressive episode and in doing so I've actually met a lot of doctors who have experienced psychosis or mania or even eating disorders and these are things that there's so much stigma still around them. Do you two have any thoughts about the stigma? I think you're right Israel to point out that we've come a long way when it comes to burnout or or depression and anxiety. Um, I note that the 
most recent APRA registration renewal uh, cited, you know, well-managed anxiety as a as a example of something that isn't an impairment and doesn't need to be disclosed. But there were people I spoke to who were rather disappointed that that was as far as the reach as they went, rather than looking at something a little bit more mm. complex, like how a depressive episode is managed and, and whether there are impairments in, in that regard. But when we look at some other illnesses, uh, you touched on a few such as psychosis and mania and eating disorders, their real reticence for people to talk about their diagnosis or their experience because I think there's a real fear about how people are going to react, whether those disclosures are going to be held over them and what impact that's going to have on their career longer term. I think in particular it's problematic in psychiatry where the people that you're potentially disclosing to may also be the people who end up treating you at some point and may also end up being your colleagues at some point. So it's it's extra challenging for people in, in our niche, I think. Personally, I have found it very difficult to talk about my diagnosis of bipolar disorder. It's been something that I've battled with for many years and I've been sort of open with talking about the battle with the depressive side of it and, and the recurrence of that and that has certainly been the predominant side of things for me. But I have had times when, you know, things have become really unstable and I have needed extra help and it's been a, quite a, a challenge going through that and I think being able to, to talk about that is important because I know that there are fellow colleagues who are battling exactly the same thing. I am part of a, a group on, on Facebook who support one another as, as doctors with bipolar disorder and it can have a real profound impact on, on their ability to function. I find myself lucky, you know, I'm relatively stable in, in terms of my condition, even though from time to time I have still depressive episodes. I feel like I've got the supports now that I'm able to manage that. But I think the stigma that still exists, it impacts people's ability to engage with those supports and probably pushes them further down the path of impairment and suffering. Thank you for sharing about your experience. Looking at our personal experiences, I've been battling, I guess, depression since late last year. And it's really, really been hard. I've, I've got a fantastically supportive uh, workplace and managed to get connected up to a really wonderful psychiatrist and, and psychotherapist. But early on, it was it was incredibly difficult because it's like, oh, who, who can I tell? And for months and months, I, I didn't tell anybody until I had the urge to tell a colleague. And seeing that they were they were so supportive, I got the courage to to be able to reach out and and start trying to access services. It's potentially really difficult to access services for anybody. 
with wait lists and fees and, and whatnot. But I think as a psychiatry registrar, it was even harder because I was so concerned about confidentiality and finding somebody who's going to be able to to be a good fit. I lucked out, to be honest. My college mentor actually put me onto, um, onto my psychiatrist, and it's the best thing that's ever happened. Got a lot of support from my service and planning. You know, if there's a crisis, who, who do I talk to? How do I access acute services? And these are all things that can be put in place, and we don't see it necessarily until somebody brings it up that, that it's a possibility. I think there's a lot that we don't necessarily see as options when we're in that state or haven't accessed services before. I wanted to talk later about the challenges of accessing mental health support. So I'll, I'll leave it there for now and, and let Vidya talk a bit about her experiences. I am an SIMG, like I, like I said, and number one, I'm not very familiar with the systems here and how to go about getting help. And I wasn't as much aware about the way it might impact my registration initially. So um, to some extent, it was, um, it was a bit of a risk that I took in terms of because I wanted to keep myself well, well as well. And I could perceive that I'm not the usual me. So I, I went through a bit of a difficult phase with, with some life events and things like that. So that was when my difficulties came to the fore and I couldn't uh, uh, go to a stage where I couldn't cope very well any longer. And I was in a bit of a crisis at the point that I sought help. And I think following that, the goodness of fit with the therapist again, I would say the therapeutic alliance was the one which encouraged me to continue to seek help and, and talk about difficulties. And initially, when I approached the therapist, there was a bit of doubt about the confidentiality, the con concept of stigma, and whether I might be judged because I'm, I'm talking about these things, or also the fear that it might get known to the workplace somehow, or it might impact my registration somehow. And besides, I'm on a limited registration as well. So some of those fears, I think I learned over the process that some of these fears are, they can be addressed merely by the therapeutic alliance we have with the therapist. So risking it sometimes is a big barrier for some to seek help. I don't exactly know why I did not stop at that process, but I think for me it was a positive experience um, and that helped me go on with that. And I also noted that I could do things much more easily. I then came across the option of uh, mentors and I, I did use the college support line at some point and I did get exposed to more options. So uh, one of the reasons I can say SIMGs may not be seeking help is because they're not aware of the system around and uh, they don't know where to go for help because they don't. I, I, they go to their own support networks where maybe a lot more stigmatizing in some ways because it's a much more close circle, a smaller group you can say. So one should be willing to risk a bit and that doesn't come very easily. And I don't know whether that is just because of the fact that we are highly regulated group of professionals or uh, that also comes along with the fact that sometimes doctors as such, I, I'm not exactly sure where psychiatrists are. I think they would be much on the lesser end in terms of the traits that might predispose them to developing mental health problems, you can put it this way. So we're known to be uh, more on the perfectionistic end. So 
that might be a barrier to some extent to uh, transitioning from somebody who is giving care to receiving care from somewhere else. And the other other issue is about the um, identity itself. Like sometimes for me, that was a bit of an issue when I first sat in the patient's chair. It was a big grief for me in some ways. And I took a long time to go over it. And uh, we may or may not complete that process based on how good the therapeutic alliance is or how comfortable we are made to feel as well. And it can be very taxing for the therapist sometimes. Like it goes that doctors can be sometimes very difficult patients. I don't know about how much we can generalize that bit, but definitely I would think that I have been a patient who was more on the difficult end, I think, because I think it did take a while for me to also build the trust with my therapist, despite me feeling a lot more comfortable than I thought I might Also, I think that I'm not sure whether I can generalize this, but uh, women are much more vocal. So it might be that also that there is a gender difference between males and females seeking help in the, for, their, for their mental health as well. So I really wouldn't be able to comment about how open local trainees are to seeking help. I'd imagine that it might be much more difficult for uh, fully qualified the fellows to seek help as well compared to trainees because we are still on the, to that extent we are, there might be a bigger risk involved in some ways for the, for the psychiatrists themselves. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, we're recognized as vulnerable in, in some ways. And once you have fellowship, you've got an extra level of responsibility. And I can see how it, If you're seeking help for the first time as a fellow, it can be quite difficult to to cross that barrier and, and be vulnerable. And we've talked a bit about APRA concerns. The statement now by APRA for what constitutes a notifiable situation is that there's significant risk to the public um, by the person practicing their, their profession. Years ago, it was just risk to the public, and that, that's quite vague. They made this change in order to better support doctors and other healthcare workers in seeking help, both for mental issues as well as for physical issues. In, in terms of barriers that sort of everybody can experience, I see that wait lists are a huge issue and there's not much we can actually do about it other than having more practitioners out there. In some areas, wait lists are a year long to see a psychiatrist. GPs may or may not feel confident and public services can often be quite stretched and only be able to deal with things that are very, very acute. When you do find somebody or you do get an appointment, if they're not a good fit, you've got to start all over again. So it can be really difficult, the process of seeking help. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic suggestion or would like to participate in a future episode of Psych Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by email at psychmatters.feedback at ranzcp.org. I think one fear that a lot of people have, whether they're lay people or they're health professionals, is compulsory care or having an inpatient admission. And every state and territory is different in how they operate in terms of their 
their mental health programs, their mental health acts. But I think that in general, inpatient admissions can be especially stressful um, and and maybe awkward um, because you're in contact with potential clients, potential colleagues, and you might run into people that you know or that you've treated. So extra care needs to be taken by the providers in, in those situations to prevent that contact and maintain that confidentiality. Some of the ways that can be managed is going out of area if you need public support, having a trusted psychiatrist, being exempted from group work if you're having a private admission, having a single room, and really developing a plan with care providers about what what would an admission look like. You might not ever need it, but to know that it's not going to be this terrifying experience can be really reassuring. With regard to compulsory treatment, that's something that people could be quite afraid of. And as psychiatry registrars, we're often working in the public system and we're putting people under um, our respective acts. And that can be a really disempowering experience um, for the person. And to be on that side of the State Mental Health Act, that seems quite scary. I've certainly been in the position where I was kept voluntary, but if I was assessing myself, I would have um, made myself compulsory. And I don't know what that would look like if, if it had happened, but sometimes compulsory treatment is is necessary, and there's no shame in that. It's in order to keep you safe, to keep other people safe, to improve your your chance of recovery and as much as we have a duty to patient autonomy we we also have a duty to treat our patients and and protect them and being protected or treated is is not shameful and i think you have you sort of talked about the issues around stigma i think this is probably where stigma comes to its pointy end where People under their respective mental health act seen as not being able to make a decision for themselves to keep themselves safe or to keep others safe. And if if that person is someone who is also a practitioner, then I think it puts them in a, a very difficult position. I think for people looking ahead, what you've touched on, Israel, around looking at what an inpatient admission would look like and, and planning ahead and having those support structures in place ahead of time so that the private system is accessible and the people who you have as supports are accessible. I think that that is the best way to go where it's possible. Of course, that's not going to be possible for everybody. People presenting crisis from time to time and they may not have had a previous experience where they have the opportunity to make those sort of plans. But I, I think we as a profession really need to strive to reduce the um, negative attitudes that we have towards compulsory treatment. 
maintaining people as voluntary as much as possible where we can, uh, which is the intention of all the acts around the country and in New Zealand, and trying to uh, treat people in a way that supports their human rights as much as possible. I think that's that's very relevant. I personally haven't had the experience of uh, inpatient admission any time, although I'd, I'd imagine I'd be very worried about it if, if I were to need that as well. Yeah, again, for the same reasons of privacy, confidentiality, and further also the fear that I'm no longer objective and, and wondering if it's, it's a difficult state to be in in that in that stage, I would imagine. So it's, it's always good to have as much certainty or as much planning around, whatever planning is possible around those instances. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, I think the main message with this is plan ahead. You might not need an extreme amount of, um, of care, but in the possibility that... Um, that you do, what's that going to look like and who is going to support you? I've had a private admission. I get maintenance um, TMAs and have had admissions around that and it's been handled really well. The staff really fantastic about confidentiality and pretty sure there are some registrars I've worked with on the ward but wasn't uh, interacting with them or anything, so just keeping to myself, really. But, yeah, I think when somebody does have an inpatient admission or they use a service that's rather public, like a large shared clinic, just having those plans in place are really, really valuable. One of the things I think that does make it easier in terms of accessing help is the actual act of being more public about what you're going through. So I think, Israel, what you've written in the video, you have talked about your experience, I've talked about mine. That act makes accessing help much, much easier because so much of the stigma is self-stigma and it's internalised. When we are able to talk about what we've gone through and the experience we've had, it breaks down the barriers for ourselves and for the person that we're talking to about it. So for me, when I first sought help, I was very much afraid of talking to anybody. I finally sought help through the Victorian Doctors' Health Program, which was a fantastic resource and put me in contact with some really good supports. But it took me a long time to be able to step out of the situation and, and able to talk about what I'd gone through until well after the fact. And having gone through repeated episodes since, I think it's helped make it much easier to deal with and to be able to seek help and assistance for. And one of the great uh, helps that I've had has, has been through the college where I've had to take time away from training and take a break in training. And I've been really supported by my director of training. I've been supported by the branch training committee who've um, supported the time away. And my own local director of training has been fantastic. And without that, I would probably not still be continuing with the training program because it would have 
interfered with it so much. So I'm really grateful for that. Yes, I would say that my therapist and my doctors were very important in terms of me recovering from my difficulties to some extent. But a large part also goes to my personal supports, like mostly in terms of friends and some family as well. And I had a mentor from the college that was very helpful at that stage. And also I've, I've sought access through the member support line and through the director of training. They were all very helpful and advocate. And having had positive experiences, I think I was able to progress to the next level and actually talk about the difficulties themselves. Before that, it was a process of kind of testing the waters as well to some extent. Yeah, I think uh, for me, that took a long time. I think probably for me, one of the most influential, I suppose, people has been the head of our psychiatry department who helped me sit down and, and make a plan with how to access out of area services if I needed them and liaised with, with those services and helped to get everything rolling. And I haven't really accessed public services, but having that, if there's a crisis, is it's a good safety net. And I guess using your existing networks can be really helpful. Like we know so many people working in medicine. We know so many people working in psychiatry for that matter. And somebody's got to know somebody who might be a good fit and, and who might be able to help in the way that you need it. And just trying to go through things that are published online or trying to go through your GP who might only know psychologists in like a four block radius isn't necessarily going to be the best thing. You might have a GP who knows every psychologist in, in the city and knows exactly who to send you to, but accessing our networks can be really valuable. I mentioned that I got connected up with my psychiatrist um, through my college mentor and knew exactly who to recommend. <laughs> uh, it was a really good fit. Whereas I think if I was going on the uh, find a psychiatrist search on the college website, you know, I wouldn't have found them. And Kieran's talked a bit about the Victorian Doctors Health Network. That's another service that, that's easy to, to access. You can call them up and I believe they've got a, a website you can contact through as well. There are lots and lots of, of organisations out there that are intended to, to help. You know, you've got the general ones like Lifeline and Beyond Blue that are for everybody. Um, but we've got specific health lines in each state and territory as well as a national one called Doctors for Doctors and a lot of times people go through unexpected financial crises and or need help to pay for care or what have you and there are medical benevolence funds in each state as well as well as the AMA peer support line uh, a lot of people have found that one quite helpful and there's some really good apps um, out there as well. I personally really like the um, Stay Alive app. It's from the UK, um, Grassroots Suicide Prevention. Beyond Now um, from the On Blue is, is quite popular as well. Are there any resources that I haven't thought of, you guys? I think you've given a very good summary there, Israel. I have used some of those myself. 
I don't think you can understate the value of Lifeline when people are in a crisis. I think it's a really great resource. It's 13, 11, 14. And as you mentioned, each each state has the various doctor's health programs that are available to be accessed. And I think also don't underestimate your friends. People can respond in, in much more supportive ways than you might expect. And that can be a pathway to finding the right help. We'll have a list of um, resources in the resource list for this podcast as well. So that'll be all the medical benevolence funds, the state-specific health lines, and the more general ones that as psychiatry registrars we probably have some familiarity with but might not think about um, in a crisis. It's good to always have those things um, available. Thank you, Vidya and Kieran, for joining me today and talking about your experiences and about about resources and things that um, we can do to to help each other. If there is one take-home point, uh, it would be that uh, it's important to make it easier for people to seek mental health support, for doctors in particular, because where I sought help, I was at a point of crisis, and it doesn't have to be that way. One of the factors there was about trust and about the amount of self-stigma. So if it can be made a culture to normalize expression of distress and and, uh, provide pathways where people are able to access with ease, some people, they may not seek help mostly because they're not feeling comfortable to talk about it themselves, but they may actually talk about it if somebody else asks them as well. So it's encouraged, definitely it's part of, I'm not sure whether it is, it's been there for long, but at least since I've been here, they have been within the organizations that I've worked, they have offered support. They've offered us the employee assistance programs and things, which which were not there in, in India, as far as I know. So there are places to seek help, but again, I'm not sure how many of them actually utilize those services. And whether that's because of confidentiality concerns or whether that's because of stigma, that's, it's still not very clear to me. So I'm just wondering, it becomes very important to find out what are the barriers to actually people not seeking help any earlier than at the crisis point. Yeah, and I think both you and Karen have touched on this, that really you want to seek help before it becomes a crisis. And Reaching out yourself to a mental health clinician or getting peer support is really important before developing mental health difficulties. And I think that's one of the really valuable things about Hand in Hand, that people might be struggling a bit, but by having somebody else to talk to about it, um, they're not going to necessarily get to that crisis point. They're not necessarily going to burn out. That's right. I think I would just say in that vein to have a plan early. You might not need it, but have a plan of of what you're going to do if you do. And if you are going to need to access mental health supports, where are you going to turn? Absolutely. We've talked a lot about the different possible resources, and really there is no wrong turn in, in this whole pool of resources available and seek help from any number of places. Absolutely. I want to add another point because I didn't really uh, touch upon uh, why it is more important as people in the field of psychiatry 
to seek help early on or to actually seek help even if it's at a later stage somewhere along the line it's important to uh, talk about personal experiences be it those that interfere with your objectivity or can potentially have a impact later on as well and that's because in the work we do there is a lot of the narrative we carry with us which also comes in the way of how we see a patient and what transpires in between some of the things which are not very tangible we we deal with some of the the gray zones if you want to put it so i think it's important to seek help for that reason as well and some of that can be through supervision but it's not really uh, like again the barrier there would be that the dual agency dilemma for the supervisor and also the fear of being reported if you get seen as somebody whose objectivity is not all right at that stage but i think it's important to have structures which help you remain objective enough to do the work that you do as well and that reminds me you know self disclosure can actually be really helpful for patients sometimes because then they know somebody else has been through this and gotten out the other side when i was experiencing quite a bit of a, a crisis probably one of the most helpful things that a clinician did was i had this experience 30 years ago and there's light at the end of the tunnel when you're really in a crisis you can't see that and you might be able to maintain your ability to practice and to see that for other people but you can't necessarily see it for yourself and as a patient that's so healing and i think it it's to some extent got therapeutic value for the clinician as well there's that human connection and that human connection so valuable for the therapeutic relationship i also wanted to check actually whether this is just a question from my side in some places i think at least for those who take up psychotherapy as the line of practice so they need to themselves attend therapy to be able to do psychotherapy for others so i'm wondering if there is anything like that here whether it's a mandatory thing or whether there is a what are the perspectives there about it depends on what approach you're taking certainly with psychoanalysis at least recommendation often requirement but often it's it's just supervision but you know therapists tend to have the value of therapy so they see people for themselves but it's not necessarily a requirement in at least most uh, mental health fields even if it is a preventive measure of some sort like they they don't have to be having issues with welfare to do that like like to know what they carry with them which can impact on things and depending on what kind of supervision you have you might be reflecting on that in supervision and not feel the need to to have an individual therapist but there's no harm in having an individual therapist and and it's always good to have somebody to just talk to that you can say anything to that's kind of what therapy is about i think overall accessing the more general circles for help for example friends and families and colleagues senior peers buddies mentors sometimes they and, and then therapists you have your gp and then you have your psychiatrist you can you can use a stepped approach in places to actually talk about the difficulties and that can help in fact it can help contain matters at the lower levels it can also come under the rubric of seeking mental health support as a practitioner yeah and going back to to supervision 
I've certainly known supervisors who've recommended mental health supports for trainees. And I think it really just depends on the supervisory relationship that that you have with that supervisor, whether you can trust them to reach out to. Sometimes people have pretty bad supervisory experiences and they wouldn't reach out to that person. But if you've got a good relationship with your supervisor and you're struggling... It might be just, I'm not finding the work fulfilling, or it could be, I'm having some serious issues. Can you point me in the right direction? Yeah. So talking as like trainees at the stage, but how does it look like when it goes higher up? Any thoughts about that? Like, What do you mean? As a psychiatrist, we don't have people here talking about it, but do we have any statistics on how easy or difficult it is for will hire up the ladder, what sort of supervision is available for them to... I don't think that we've got good research in Australia on this um, sort of thing. I'm not familiar with overseas research either, but as you're in the profession longer, you have more network connections and probably have a bit of a better idea of how systems work and The APRA concerns are the same regardless of what you do, with the exception of if you do invasive procedures and have a a bloodborne illness. But in terms of mental health and risk, it's all about there being a, a substantial risk to the public and seeking help isn't being risky. So you can access the same things, whether you're a trainee or a, a fellow. Um, you know, the doctor-specific health lines are open to, to all doctors. The medical benevolence funds are open to all doctors. The AMA peer support line and, and hand-in-hand are available to everyone as well. And then even more generally... You know, if you call Lifeline or the Suicide Callback Service, Beyond Blue, any of those, you're getting help and, and that's the responsible thing to do. And I think it was Kieran who said there are no wrong turns. Thank you, Kieran and Vidya, for joining me today and sharing your experiences and talking to me about all the resources out there and also the um, strategies that we might take to to get help. Um, I think the big message that we've all been saying is to seek help and seek help early and that seeking help through any means is going to get you there. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Just remember, if you are worried about your own or others' well-being, you can find crisis contacts on the RANZCP's Your Health in Mind website. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.